Good morning. How is everybody? Good. Um, that good? <laughs> uh, I do have a fun announcement that should raise the energy in the room. Um, a lot of you know that we have, uh, that Jalen, our pastoral resident, um, has been waiting on uh, sort of what's next for him and the next chapter for him. And since we've announced this publicly several times, we felt like it'd be appropriate to announce that there's been a very exciting resolution to that. Jalen has indeed gotten into a PhD program. And he's gotten into the one that we have prayed that he would get into, which is uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, which long story short means he's going to be here, y'all. So, yes, yes. So a uh, so bunch, right, bunch of details to work out and all of that of what all this means, but uh, we had hired Jalen uh, about a year and a half ago now with the understanding that this would be part of the process and then with the hope um, that he'd be able to sort of have one foot in the academy, one foot in the church while he was going through his PhD and, and that foot in the church be in this church. <laughs> and so, um, so God's been gracious in that way and allowed it to, to be what we also deeply desired. And so uh, more to come on sort of what's next for Jalen in that role, but really excited for him and to see God answer that prayer. Yeah, right. So cool. So that's that. Um, with, yeah, you can congratulate him today. I'm sure that that's what he wants is just everyone, <laughs> all eyes on him. Uh, this, this story, right, should be familiar to you. This is the story from which our church gets its name. And we have, uh, we've talked through this passage a number of times in the history of our church. Even recently, we went through it. And yet I think that there's really something fresh for us here this morning. We've called this series it, through these, the, sort of the first half of the Gospel of John. We've called it Encountering Jesus. And that comes from our vision. We say that we want to be a church that's known for breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together. Breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together. And I think the Gospel of John does this really beautiful job of showing us what it looks like when we encounter Jesus, what, what that experience is like. And that's, that's what I want to look at today. And so I figured, why not? Why not use our vision, which comes directly from this passage, to even structure what we'll talk about? So I want to look at some of the barriers that are being broken here, kind of a review for many of us who have been around this church for a while, and then really look at what is this encounter with Jesus? Um, what, what, what are the mechanics of it? What is he doing here? with this woman. So we're going to dive right in. Obviously, we have a lot of ground. Um, you're going to get used to us covering a lot of ground in this series. Um, and so off we go. I would deeply prefer that you have your Bibles open. Um, there's Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, or at least on your phone. There's a lot to follow here. And so, uh, so join me if you would. So one of, the, one of the things that's interesting about doing this story, the story of Jacob's well and the Samaritan woman, in the midst of this series is you see it a little bit more in context. And what almost certainly is going on here from the very start is a contrast between the Samaritan woman and the encounter with Jesus that immediately precedes this, which was with who? Anybody remember his name? Pretty unforgettable the way that Jalen preached it. Jalen's boy Nico, um, right? Uh, Nicodemus. Think of think of the contrast between these two individuals. Nicodemus is a male, <laughs> and we have a Samaritan woman. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at what time of day? 
Yeah, he comes to him in the night, right? The Samaritan woman comes to Jesus. We're told it's the sixth hour, which is, which is noon. It's, it's high noon. She is someone who is clearly marginalized for reasons that aren't entirely clear, but we get the clear sense that, that she has been pushed to the edges of society. Nicodemus, we are told, is a ruler of the people. He is someone with power. She is someone without power. It's really interesting, though, as we go through the differences between, uh, between the reactions of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Because what we would expect, I'll just give you the sort of spoiler alert on this, what we w- would expect is that Nicodemus, who's familiar with the Jewish scriptures, who is a leader of the people, r- remember this in, in what Jalen preached, is Jesus o- almost expresses a measure of frustration with Nicodemus to say, You study the scriptures, this is your life, you know this, and I'm surprising you with this information? You of all people should be able to put the pieces together of who I am. This interaction with the Samaritan woman, we don't have it quite yet. We'll get to the latter half of this interaction next week, but but it ends very differently. After Jesus looks at her in this mic drop moment that what Uliana just read, right? That that last moment is such a fascinating moment right there in verse 26 where Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. He reveals himself as Messiah and her reaction is very different than Nicodemus's. For all intents and purposes, we get the sense that Nicodemus slinks back off into the night not to return again until sometime later in the gospel story, whereas this woman, far from slinking off back into the night in the heat of the noonday sun, hightails it back into the city and tells the whole city, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. You see, there's intention in the way that these two stories are placed together. The one who should have gotten it doesn't. The one who is unlikely to get it is utterly transformed. This is what an encounter with Jesus can look like. All right, verse one. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Notice what's going on here. Jesus is making disciples. This is why our church is very much focused on discipleship. That's a biblical word for learning from, apprenticing under, following Jesus. This is something that Jesus was doing from the beginning. Then I love this little parenthetical in verse 2. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. In other words, the information that is beginning to spread about Jesus, that there's an inaccuracy that's beginning to start in the way that the word about Jesus is spread. Some would call that fake news, right? Like that's what's going on here, is that even the things that are getting Jesus in trouble are being miscommunicated as they make their way through the whatever, through the channels of communication. Verse 3, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee. So he's going from Jerusalem, which is in the south. Maybe you remember the map I showed last time. He's going back home, which is up in the north. Verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Throughout John's gospel, the had to there is this little Greek word. Maybe those of you who have heard me preach on this before have in your margin there. It's this little Greek word, D-E-I, dia. D-E-I, and it's this, it's this word that says it had to be this way. It was necessary. It must go this way. And throughout John's gospel, that word, that little teeny tiny three-letter word, D-E-I, is used again and again to speak of God's initiative. This is something that God should, chose to do in this way. Strictly speaking, we've said this before, 
when it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria, he did not have to geographically. He did not have to, according to the customs of that day, the transportation patterns of that day would have gone around Samaria. So saying he had to pass through Samaria is something that comes from his, his identity as the Son of God, that the Father is pushing him into the middle of the scene. And this is where we have to pause and say, what's with Samaria? So Samaria was seen as uh, a region full of people who, according to uh, Jesus' brethren, according to the Jewish people, were, um, were not to be dealt with, as we're told in just a couple verses, right? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why is this the case? Samaria, here's a little history for you. When the northern kingdom of Israel was ransacked by the Assyrian Empire back in 722 BC. Only a remnant of native Israelites, only, only a remnant of Jews were left in, in that area. Everyone else was carried off. You might remember this from stories of uh, like the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. Remember that was, that was, a, that was a different, slightly different kingdom, but they would carry off sort of the best of the best. Um, from these places, these huge empires like Assyria and Babylon, they would go and they'd conquer a place and then they would take sort of your best and brightest and brilliant and most powerful and they'd bring them to where they were so that those people couldn't continue to have influence in that place. See how that works? They'd bring them to their kingdom, put them in their schools, train them up into their culture so that there wouldn't be the threat of rebellion back here. But of course they would leave some people there to tend to things and all that. And then what they would do is they would send some of their best to that conquered place. This is what Samaria came to be known as, was the place where that sort of colonization process had been in many ways um, centrally located when the Assyrians had conquered. Now, even if you're not following all of that, what does that mean? It means that this was seen as a place of sellouts, basically. They'd sold out to the conquering empires. They'd gotten comfortable being under the culture, the religion, the practices, the social norms of, uh, of conquering empires outside. And so the, the Jewish people, who themselves had been conquered, but ultimately reclaimed that southern place in Judea, reclaimed it, rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, reestablished the priesthood, and all of those things had regained what was taken from them, they would say, we're not going to associate with those salads because we have worked so hard to get what we have. What this ultimately led to is that the Jewish people said, here in Jerusalem, where we have done away with all of these conquering armies, this is where true worship of our one and only God takes place. The Samaritans had a different view. They said, no, 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 no. True worship of God takes place at this other mountain. We're going to hear this conversation later on that's in the middle of where we live because this is the mountain where where the Ten Commandments were first read. This seems to be the mountain where Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac. It was in this region that that happened. So why can't worship of God happen here? So there's also this little religious debate going on between the Jewish and the Samaritan people. Again, if you're not following those details, what you have to realize is Samaritan, here's, here's a good way to put it. Samaria was contested space. It was geography, it was land that was buzzing with controversy. 
which explains why Jewish people going from the, the sort of pureness of Jerusalem back up to another place that had basically um, gotten itself back to sort of the pure worship of God up in Galilee where Jesus was from. It's why they would go around Samaria. In fact, the parenthetical little mention you have, uh, skip down to verse 9, where the woman says, Samaritan woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, of Samaria, and then this in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That word there is not just like, it's not just like they don't hang out together. It's a technical word. It's a word that means they don't share utensils. They don't eat together. That this, this difference between, between the Jews and Samaritans, it was, it was visceral. It was tangible. It was, I'm not going to eat off a plate that, that potentially a Samaritan has eaten off of. That's the level of contention that Jesus now is going straight into. Okay? Jesus had to pass through this. And what we've said before is especially with our core identity of life in multi-ethnic community, right? There's contested space here in New Jersey of all of these different cultures and ethnicities and histories and, and religious backgrounds and even within the Christian community, different ways of doing church and all of that stuff. And we've said that we as a church, this doesn't have to be every church's divine mandate, but part of who we are and part of why this story means so much to us is we feel a divine compulsion not to walk around that and do an end around in that, but we feel we have to pass through it, right? The way for us into all of that is through, not around, okay? So that's why we do the kinds of things that we do. That's why we talk a lot about, man, how do we really be a reconciled community when all around us, culture and all of these things wants to say, these type of people and these type of people, put anything on that you want, culture, politics, age, socioeconomics, right? We're told, no, 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 no. You, you're supposed to find echo chambers and be separate and just find your niche in this world. We say, no, 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 what the gospel does, because what Jesus did is that we feel a divine compulsion to move toward those things rather than around them, okay? That's breaking barriers, there's also interpersonal things going on here. So you have this massive cultural, right? Like I was trying to think of what is what, what in our context is this contested? And all I could think of was like, I don't know, maybe like Gettysburg or maybe certain places in Washington, D.C. where things have happened, right? Like this is a buzzy place. That, and even this well, by the way, has an interesting history to it. The, the well that uh, we're told... Um, who gave who, that Joseph gave Jacob, or Jacob gave Joseph, right? Um, how does that work? I forget what the order is there. What is it? Jacob definitely gave Joseph. Okay, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, is, so, so you have all this cultural stuff, you have all this historical stuff, you, you have these sort of, um, you have these ways in which Jesus embodies all of this, and she embodies all this, but then you have this interpersonal thing going on. Then you, yeah, you read that scripture, Cindy. Um, right, then, then there's this interpersonal interaction going on where Jesus has 
and I've put it this way before, is like not only is there that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, but you get the sense Jesus had to be sitting at that well at that time when that woman showed up. You get the sense that Jesus, from eternity past, in glory with his Father, was sent on this particular moment, on this particular day, for this particular woman. We see God's pursuit and in fact, that's something Jesus will talk about later in their interaction is God is pursuing, God is seeking, God is going after people. And you get the sense the woman goes, oh, I get it. God's going after me, right? Because you can have theological beliefs about God's pursuit and how God initiates salvation and how God gives grace first before we do anything. But at some point, that reality needs to come crashing down on you for it to be actualized in your life. That's what we're watching happen to this woman. But there's, there's things going on between the two of them. And so Jesus shows up in the middle of the day. We don't know exactly why she's out there. It's definitely strange that she's out there when she is. You go and collect water when it's cool in the morning and when it's cool at night. Why is she there at noon? We probably find out a little bit from this interesting interaction about many different husbands and whatever's going on there. But clearly she's not someone surrounded by community. Clearly, she's not someone who's been embraced by this society and city, okay? Now she encounters this one who fairly soon into their interaction, she's like, you're a holy man. You're a prophet. And you can feel in their dialogue, you can feel her um, curiosity. You can feel almost her tension of, what's going on here? Like, why are you here at this time? I come here every day. I come here every day at this time. And right, like this is where she reminds me so much of a New Jersey person. It's like, I come here because no one else is here, right? Like, do you have that place where you're like, I go to that Wawa because I never have to talk to anyone at this particular time to get my coffee, right? Like, she's like, what, what are we, why are you here? Why are you talking to me? Came to a town in Samaria, called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. There it is. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was, Jesus was a real human being, y'all. He's really tired. He's not acting tired. He's not putting on his human face and suppressing his godness. He's a real human being. He's tired. They've been walking. It's the middle of the day. Whole sermon that I could preach on that. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You have a little note there probably in your Bible that says it was noon. woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We don't eat off the same plates. We certainly don't drink out of the same wells or out of the same you know, vessels, out of the same buckets. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She doesn't get it at first. We've got to get used to this, right? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is crazy deep, and uh, we tend not to be very deep, okay? Like, we can't judge these characters. This isn't an indictment of the characters. This is an indictment of, of human ways of interacting with the world. Jesus is working levels deeper always than we're ready to be taken. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Again, living water in that time is rushing water. It's, it's clear water. It's water that's been filtered beforehand. It's the Fiji of its day. She wants in, right? 
Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now Jesus is just out here preaching. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. They're both thirsty, right? literally, right? Like they're both physically thirsty. It's so interesting what Jesus does here. He says to her, hey, would you get me a drink? She's like, why are you asking me for a drink? Because I'd have to put it in my bucket, okay? And then you'd have to drink from my thing. There'd have to be a level of intimacy here that I'm not sure you really want, right? Like, you, you don't look like one of us. You don't sound like one of us. Your accent isn't a Sumerian accent, right? Like, I, I don't understand what's happening here. And then Jesus says, he says, if you understood the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for water... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I know it feels like I'm asking you for something, but I'm actually inviting you to ask me for something. I'm actually inviting you into an exchange. I know that it feels like you're giving something up, but by giving something up, you're being drawn into a far greater offer, is what he's saying here. And he's using the analogy of thirst to get at what's going on here. So we've seen the barriers that were broken, right? There's historical and cultural and ethnic and social. And as we'll find out in a little bit, there's probably some moral barriers that Jesus is breaking here. Now we're getting into this encounter with Jesus. The encounter is based around this whole idea of thirst. First thing that we have to know that's going on is Jesus, now she, she probably doesn't pick up on this, right? But the Gospel of John is to be read and reread, and so this is probably one of those times where John is saying, right, kind of like last week, where it's like Nicodemus doesn't get it, but by putting the conversation in there, the, John, the Gospel writer, is begging us to say, do you get it? Do you get what I'm trying to say? So partially what's going on here is that Jesus is picking up on some Old Testament themes from the prophets about what will happen, what God will do when he finally intervenes in human history and makes right what has gone wrong. Now we've had a little preview of the fact that Jesus is working in that category back in John chapter 2 when he turns water into wine. Because we said that there's all of these passages in the Old Testament that talk about how God will bring the richest of wine, how God will bring a feast with him when he comes back into history. Now Jesus' first sign, remember that language? His first sign, that which points beyond itself, is bringing wine to a party. Hint, hint, they don't get it, do you? That time has come. God is breaking into human history and doing something completely brand new. In fact, new creation, we said, has begun. Something very similar is going on here. Listen to Jeremiah, one of the great Old Testament prophets. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. This is about God coming, right? There's a fearfulness when God comes. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So this is Jeremiah setting up why God needs to come in the first place. The analogy that he chooses, he says, God has living water. 
God has the good stuff. God has that which will satiate that soul-level thirst. And yet what his people are doing is that they're going after a hundred other broken ways in order to fulfill that thirst. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Next one, Isaiah. Listen to these series of passages. Now this is what will happen when God comes. With joy, when God comes, you will draw out from the wells of salvation. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. This isn't just a metaphor. It's a biblically rich metaphor. It's a metaphor that God's people have been prepared for, for centuries, longing to have satiated in them. By saying, I provide living water. I provide something that will fulfill that thirst at a deep level that nothing else possibly can. Jesus is saying, I am that well of salvation. I am God's intervention in history. I am the bringer of the Spirit who will change you from the inside out and deeply fulfill you. And as I thought about this all week, I just thought, man, is there a more currently relevant metaphor for what Jesus is trying to bring into our lives than the satiation of what appears to be insatiable thirst. Listen to, this is crazy. Listen to, um, do you know who Emil Durkheim is? <laughs> I'd be very impressed if you did. Emil Durkheim is, is one of the founders of sort of modern sociology. And here is a very, very hard to follow quote, but I felt like it was still worth it. Ready? Emil Durkheim. He said this in 1897, okay? He's talking about, don't look at it. Don't look at it. Look at me. Eyes on me. He's talking about his concern that we were moving into post-enlightenment, a cultural move where freedom was going to be defined as the access to boundless choice is, right, like this so characterizes our modern cultural moment that we believe that freedom is the freedom to do whatever we want and to have endless choices of what we can do and who we can be, which to us sounds so obvious because we've been breathing this air our whole lives. But prior, literally prior to like two, three hundred years ago, that would have been an insane way to define what a flourishing human being was. Here's, here's how he articulates the trajectory that he sees in that cultural moment. He says, unlimited desires are insatiable by definition, and insatiability is rightly considered a sign of morbidity. It's a disease. It's a disease that leads to death. Being unlimited, they constantly and infinitely surpass the means at their command, okay? It's like you can't have endless choice. At some point, you gotta choose. You have only so much time and energy and choice in this life. 
They cannot be quenched. Check out this line. wonder if he's reading John 4. Inextinguishable thirst is constantly renewed torture. Inextinguishable thirst is constantly renewed torture. All right, take that down. In modern Western culture, I just read this extraordinary book uh, by, by this thinker named Alan Noble. I've highly come out, I very rarely like fully endorse the book, fully endorse this book. It's called You Are Not Your Own. And in it, what he argues, he's a Christian, and in it, what he argues is that basically um, Durkheim was right, and that that's the moment that we're living in, is that modern Western capitalistic society, and I'm not against, I, I don't just wholesale hate any of those things, but largely how it defines what a human person is, is we are consumers. And if culture and if industry can keep us in a state of insatiable thirst, it will keep us dishing out dollars to the next thing that we deeply think we need. Okay? That is, right, constantly renewed torture, right? That we are, right, like just, just think of scrolling, right? Like especially since these social media things have gone so ad heavy, yeah, you might scroll to see a friend or whatever, but really what you're scrolling through is either endless opportunities to consume that next wonderful product that's actually gonna bring full and total lasting satisfaction in your life, or check this out, this is the more subtler thing it does, you're scrolling through potential identities. Well, I want to be that type of person. Ooh, those people look sophisticated and interesting and cool. Maybe I could be like that. What do I got to do to be that? And you're scrolling. You're saying, Ooh, that's an interesting life. Ooh, I'd like to be on a mountain peak in Tahiti. Like, that looks interesting. How would I do that? And it's just thirst, 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 right? And it creates this insatiable, this indis- inextinguishable, I love that, that adjective, inextinguishable thirst in us. I'll read you a quote from that. I'll be really, yeah, we have little ears in here. Um, Let the reader understand what he's talking about. Um, He is talking about a certain thing that we can look at that seems to guarantee full and total satisfaction. Something that men and women both struggle with. Okay? Tracking with what I'm saying? Good luck. All right, here we go. It is the unspoken logic of that thing. Okay? It ends with Griffey. Because if we name it, we admit that in it, we momentarily allow ourselves to believe that a mass-produced image represents intimate and personal affirmation. Then it will lose much of its power. It's also unspoken because it's easier to admit to being biologically driven by lust than emotionally driven by loneliness or inadequacy. And as one sociologist argues uh, in his history of depression, inadequacy is the pathology of contemporary depression. These things cannot actually involve our hearts. So when the moment passes and you are faced with how, check out this description. And I think that this is a description not just of what he's talking about here, but a description of our modern cultural moment. When the moment passes and you are faced with how tiny, meaningless, and sad-making, how tiny, 
meaningless, and sad-making your fantasy really was, you may feel more alone and inadequate than ever, and to alleviate the renewed feelings of inadequacy, you turn to the very thing that created those feelings. Yo. That goes for scrolling. That goes for this. Where am I going to find my identity? That goes for areas like lust, right? This, this inextinguishable thirst. It's in there for us as people, right? Like it's, part, it's part of broken, sinful nature. We are living in a culture that loves to stir that up. That loves to... Um, fan that into flame and say yeah maybe maybe just a little bit more maybe that next thing maybe that next identity maybe that next post right maybe maybe that amount of likes maybe that amount of follows right and even if you're not involved in social media there's some version of that that modern culture is probably trying to draw out for me just another promotion just a little bit more money just a little bit more recognition and success. Just a little bit more pleasure and adventure in my life. Jesus comes into the noonday exhaustion and heat of that indistinguishable thirst. And he says, whoever drinks of that water will thirst again. Learn the lesson. It will never fulfill it's a lie. The next time is not the hit that you actually need. But if you come to me, I will give you living water. And whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. Do you know what he's saying there? He's not saying that you'll never thirst for Jesus again. He's not saying that it's a one-time thing and then you just spend the rest of the life. He says, when you come to me, you'll experience something and you'll finally find out there is a place where satisfaction lives. There is a place where peace lives. There is a place where I can go to actually find fulfillment and grace and mercy and something spoken over my life that says, you're okay, you're okay, and you're safe with me. And so when he says you'll never thirst again, what he's saying is you'll never wonder where the source of the satiation of your thirst comes from again because you'll know it's me. Does anybody, does anybody agree with that, right? Okay, here's what we do, right? Some of you need to hear that in a one-time way. Some of you have been spending your whole lives and you're exhausted and you feel that noonday heat on you and you're saying, where is it? Where can I not be thirsty? What do I need? And I'm telling you, it's Jesus. It's this one. Most, most people in this room are followers of Jesus, though. Can I tell you what we do? What God convicted me of this week? He's shown me this. I know this. I know that my soul never needs to thirst the way that it does again. And yet I am so prone to wander back to broken cisterns and stale water and to say, why do I do that? When I know that, that his promise is legit. He really does fulfill, right? Like, like on those occasions when I actually stop long enough, I was just telling the staff this, for me, I don't know about you, for me it's like when I just finally stop and give myself two minutes of silence, this is something that I learned in discipleship course through the, through the practice of daily office, it's like when I just stop and I give myself those two minutes of silence, I slow down. What am I doing? For me, even this week, I was like, you know what I'm doing? I'm re-engaging that thirst. Saying, okay, that's what's going on. I'm thirsty. My soul is thirsty. I'm exhausted. That's what's happening. So rather than a, another YouTube video, 
rather than another scroll, rather than another purchase, let me slow down and go to the source of living water. And every time I do that, just spend a little bit of time, right? We don't have exactly how you have to do this, so do it your way, right? Listen to a worship song. Read a psalm. Pray back through your day and, and, and express gratitude to God for everything that he's done that day. This has become my most precious practice. And you know what happens after that? I end with another two minutes of silence, and I, I, can, I can literally feel it. I go, I'm not as thirsty. I can move on with my day. I can go to sleep peacefully, right? And this is not do the Jesus thing and whatever. You'll get your, right, like, Prosperity gospel is a heresy. You're never going to hear that preached here. But if I don't tell you that Jesus really means what he says here and that there is living water available, and I'm not preaching you the scriptures. There is living water available. Do you know why so many of us don't go back after we've been drinking from broken cisterns? We think he's not ready for us. We think he's going to tap his toe and say, where have you been, right? How dare, I've been looking all over for you. How dare you? You know what you find? You find that when you slink back and you say, oh, I, know, I know this is what I need. For some reason, I haven't been going there. You know what you find? You find he's sitting at the well. You find he's sitting there. He's like, oh, hey, you're back. Need some living water? Yeah, I got you, right? So much of why we don't return to Jesus is we preach ourselves a false gospel. And we say, I need to get resaved. I need to get reconverted. I need to, have, uh, to, to beat myself up for all the sin that I've done. I need to feel guilty enough. I need to put in my days of regret and remorse and all those things. And meanwhile, he's sitting at the well going, or you could come over here because I'm the only one that can do that anyway. My sacrifice, I put my body on the line so that you could come and stay back here. You're never going to get crucify yourself enough to get saved enough to now come back here in some state that I don't even ask you to be in. You've got to remember how merciful and good he is, right? That's what encountering Jesus always is. He always overturns our expectations of just how much grace is grace, Okay? Just how much mercy is mercy. Mercy, right, is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. This is who Jesus is. And so every time your heart screams at you, but you don't deserve it, you go, oh yeah, that's why it's good news. Because grace gives me what I don't deserve. And you say, but I deserve to be punished. I deserve to be distant from him. It says, yeah, that's why you need mercy. Because you, you don't get what you do deserve. And he's sitting at the well, waiting. There's one other movement here. I'll make it quick. We've talked more about this in the past. She says, what do I got to do? Jesus says, um, let's talk it over with your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus is like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Right? It's so quick. He's like, go get your husband. She's like, I don't have it. He's like, I know. Um, it's really funny. There's one commentary I was reading. I was like, how did he know this? It's like, how did he know this? It's just funny what people try and do. It's like, how did he know this? Um, anyway, that's a whole other. It's like people try and make Jesus not Jesus. He's Jesus. That's how he knows. Um, you have had five husbands. One you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. He actually appreciates her honesty. I think that that's what he's saying here. 
It's like, I appreciate you being honest with me. Appreciate you being up front. Appreciate we didn't have to dance around that for very long. What's going on here? We don't know. We don't know. There's two sort of major interpretations of this. One is that this is a woman who, for reasons that she's mostly responsible for, um, is constantly running off from these men and finding new husbands. That's one. Uh, that seems like a very 21st, 20th century interpretation of this. Women were not that empowered, but that's a possibility, definitely a possibility. The other possibility is that she's been handed along by these men, um, either because they find her unworthy for whatever reason, or these men have died and she's just had, had a horrible string um, of incidents in her life. I've always said, uh, right, our lives are a mess because of a combination of both. And I'm sure this woman's life is a mess because of a combination of the ways that she herself has sinned and the ways that she has been sinned against. Here's what Jesus says. He says, look, you got to bring that to me. That's what he's saying here. He says, go call your husband. He's like, first, we've got to deal with what's actually blocking your ability to get through. Because so much, like, like that long quote that I read you, talks about is that so much of our hesitancy to go to Jesus' living water is stuff that we think we have to hide from him. It's stuff that we think he can't handle. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Just like I had to go through Samaria, not around it, I have to go through your stuff. I have to go through your mess. We can't end around that because if my healing is gonna go as deep as it's actually capable of going, you're gonna have to open and avail some of that, some of that messy stuff in your life. Heard this the other day, I don't know if it's true, but man, does it preach. Is uh, there's a difference between uh, buffalo and cows. Has anybody heard this? The difference between how buffalo and cows respond to storms. When, um, when there's a storm off in the distance, imagine a bunch of buffalo, imagine a bunch of cows. When they hear a storm coming in the distance, the cows do what many of us do. They start running away. But the cows are not very fast, you may know. So as they run, the storm slowly catches up with them. And then as they're running this way, they stay in the storm, right? Until finally, at last, that storm goes over them. You know what buffalo do? They run towards the storm. So they take off. They see the storm. They run toward it, right? And so now there's, there's them running this way. And there's the storm coming this way. And you can see that at some point they're in the storm, right? Because the storm and they are going in opposite directions. They figured out that which do you think is quicker, right? The buffalo. Jesus is a buffalo herder. He's not a cow farmer, right? He's saying that thing that you keep trying to run away from that just feels like a cloud over your life that you're like, no, it'll end eventually. It'll just pass over. It'll get there. Jesus says, what if we turn around and ran toward it, right? And Jesus is saying, come with me into that stuff because it'll pass quick and I'll be with you in the midst of it. And then when the skies clear out, then there's some real healing. Then there's some newness of life. Then there's some, what really does feel like salvation on the other side of that, rather than the long slog of trying to tuck away all of the mess in your life. This is why we do discipleship in weird ways here, where we talk about our stories and we talk about our junk and we talk about our families of origin. This is why we're a church that believes that counseling is a, is a wonderful gift to the church of God. It's not a replacement for the gospel. It's not a replacement for Jesus, but it comes alongside those things and says, maybe that can help us run towards the storm a little bit quicker with a little bit more accuracy and with a little bit of help, right? 
it finally ends with this woman saying to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Um, and I've, I've always read what comes after this as a bit of a duck, as like her ducking out of the conversation. I think I read it differently now. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's bringing up this controversy, right? This historical controversy. Is it Jerusalem or is it this mountain? I think what's really going on here, she's like, I might actually be in the presence of someone who can solve this for me. I think she's bringing for her one of the biggest, right? Like if you're standing and you realize like, oh, I'm standing in the presence of Jesus himself, you might say something like, I don't know, like, is, is, is the Bible really true and authoritative and everything, right? Like what's your big theological thing that if you could ask Jesus that would settle a lot in your life, what would you ask him? I think that that's actually what she's doing. Our fathers worship on this mountain. You say in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Again, I don't think she's ducking out. I think she's baiting him. She's saying, whoa, that's a pretty authoritative answer. I'll throw this out there. When Messiah comes, we're told that he's going to speak authoritatively. Any thoughts? Right? And Jesus meets her where she's, where she's trying to draw him out. He says, I who speak to you am he. He says, look, where true freedom is actually found, when we stop this inextinguishable thirst and move towards the living water, when we actually go through the messiness of our lives rather than constantly running away from it, he says, on the other side is true and genuine worship. What you were always created for, you'll be freed to become who God always created you to be. And he says, worship of me. He says, worship in spirit and truth. What's he getting out there? He's saying, worship that is fueled and empowered by something far more powerful than you. It's, it's worship from the spirit, from inside, from, from the transformation that I'm doing within you. Your life will flow from that, right? Here he's not just talking about worship, three songs at the beginning, a song at the end, right? He's talking about whole life worship. He's saying that that will... That will come from the Spirit, and then it'll, be, it'll move towards truth. It'll move towards what you were actually created for. Probably what he's saying here is it'll move toward me, right? He calls himself the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Fueled by the Spirit, Christ-like in every way. Let me just show you one slide that tries to capture some of this. Thirsty modernity, right? It wants us to believe that we're just this unlimited desire. Satisfying worship is trusting contentment. Thirsty modernity tries to make everything about self-expression become who you really are. Satisfying worship is, no, 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 God has made you within a certain web of relationships. He's made you with a certain calling and purpose and that there's freedom within figuring out what does it look like to live within those godly, good, freeing, what otherwise we think of as constraints. Right? Going from social media, from this disembodied experience of life to an embodied vulnerability with actual people, right? Showing up to care group, having deep friendship with others, going from constant consumption to actually self-giving sacrifice, going from a tiny, meaningless, sad-making existence to an expansive, meaningful, life-giving existence in Jesus. Anybody want that? Right? Oh, 
We're so bad at choosing what we need, aren't we? We're so bad. That's why we come to this table, right? We'll, we'll end at this table because we need repentance so bad. Repentance, right, it's a word that means changing your mind, but the biblical idea is far greater than that. It's, it's going from a certain way of doing things in your life and saying, I'm just not going to do it that way anymore, and then turning back to the source of living water. And what's beautiful is, yes, we do this in a one-time way at salvation. We bend the knee to Jesus, and some of you may need to do that today, but this is something we, we do this every week at Jacob's Well because it's something we constantly need to do because we're always going back to these old patterns saying, why am I doing it that way again? Okay, I have an opportunity to repent and move back. So see this as an invitation today, especially to return to the one who is sitting here waiting for you. We say that Jesus meets us at this table in a, in a really beautiful way, in a, in, a, in a real way. And so what we do is we come down these middle aisles. We have the bread and then the wine and the juice are labeled. If you're not a follower of Jesus, scriptures are very clear that you honor him way more by just considering what you've heard. But I would encourage you as the band comes forward to just take a minute to say, Maybe, maybe do that little practice of just even literally one minute to get quiet. Say, man, where, where is that thirst evident in my life? What would it look like to turn back to the one who has made these promises to me? That he has alone living water. And then come to this table. You can take the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, take it and go out the sides. Uh, the band will play a little bit and then you can come when you're ready.